Well, this is a re-recording of the message that was given at the Church of God in Manchester this morning. Uh, the recording device failed, so this is a repeat. It's a continuation of our series in the letter to the Romans written by Paul. I'd like us just to backpedal a little because I think the background situation to the letter will be very helpful for us to understand its purpose then and how we should interpret it now and then apply it now as well. When we write letters to people or we receive letters from people, they are sent with an intention to achieve a purpose and an aim. We might not use pen and ink so much today, but certainly by sending an email or sending through a message, uh, we are still wanting to convey something to the recipient or the sender wants us as the recipient to understand something in relation to a situation or a circumstance that applies to us. So there is an objective and an aim in communicating in this way and it was the same for letters back in the first century. But I just want to emphasise something about letter writing from the first century when Paul was writing. Historians tell us that letters back then were very expensive to produce. They were usually a collaborative work. Because they were so expensive, someone would uh, usually involve other people to try and arrive at the best words and the phrasing of words and so on to address a particular matter that they wanted to convey in their letter. If we look at Romans chapter 16 and verse 21, Romans 16 and 21 says, Timothy, my co-worker, sends his greetings to you, as do Lucius, Jason and Sosipater, my fellow Jews, and I, Tertius, who wrote down this letter, greet you in the Lord. And Gaius, whose hospitality I and the whole church here enjoy, sends you his greetings. So we see that this letter from Paul wasn't just from him. It is likely that he would have um, worked through the material uh, in a collaborative way with Timothy and the others that are mentioned there. We, we've read of Tertius. He was the scribe. Now this here is one expensive part of the um, letter writing situation. You had to employ a scribe to write down what it was that you wanted to convey, which is why you would spend a lot of time collaborating about the best way to say something. And then the scribe, whose time you had to pay for, would be the one responsible to catch that and to capture it in writing. You also then had the cost of the parchments themselves by that time. Parchments were used, but they were expensive. And also, another significant cost was the cost of sending it to the recipients. It's not like we're used to now of getting a little postage stamp and sticking it on an envelope and putting it in a post box and it makes its way there for a very small amount of money. Back then you had to think about the courier, the person, paying for their time and also for their transit to wherever it was the letter needed to get to. So we learn about Tertius here. He's the one who's the scribe. We can probably see that Timothy and Lucius and Jason and Gaius and others were probably collaborators with Paul. And Paul being the prime mover here to know how to say things and what to say as guided by the Spirit. 
that needed to be said to the church of God in Rome. And we also read in verse 1 of chapter 16 that Phoebe, who was from the church of God in Cancrea, which was just up the road from Corinth, which is where Paul would have been when he wrote this letter, she seems to be the one who was sent with the letter and she was to come. So her time and her transit were part of the cost of producing this letter. So given that the letters were so time-consuming to produce and time-consuming because they were so expensive to produce, what was it that Paul wanted to say to the Church of God in Rome, the recipients of this letter? If we go to chapter 15 now, Romans chapter 15, and we look at verse 22, Paul says there, This is why I have often been hindered from coming to you. But now that there is no more place for me to work in these regions, and since I have been longing for many years to visit you, I plan to do so when I go to Spain. I hope to see you while passing through and to have you assist me on my journey there after I have enjoyed your company for a little while. Here we see one reason that Paul was writing to the Church of God in Rome. He'd never met these people. The Church of God in Rome had likely been established a number of years before Paul um, was able to finally get there. And it had been around and the gospel had reached that far, maybe Priscilla and Aquila, some of those that are mentioned in this letter and also in Acts and, and other places in the New Testament. They had been the couriers, the carriers of the gospel of the glory of God in the person of the Lord Jesus to this group. And they had been established as a church of God. Paul had got to the point where he wanted to go further with the gospel. He wanted to go beyond Rome. And Spain was the, the end of the known world at that time. And what we've read here tells us that Paul wanted to use the church of God in Rome almost as a springboard or a staging post on his journey to Spain. That they could help him on his way. And he wanted to come, of course, and to, to enjoy their company. He said that. But also, let's look at Romans chapter 1 for that. Because in Romans chapter 1, the, the proper opening of the letter, we see in verse 11. He says, I long to see you, so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. That is, that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that I planned many times to come to you, but I've been prevented from doing so until now, in order that I might have a harvest among you, just as I have had among the other Gentiles. So here we see, again, it articulated for us that Paul was coming to the Church of God in Rome with the intention of going from there to Spain with the Gospel. And he wanted to come and to be a blessing to them, and he wanted them to be a blessing to him. And this is where we get to the major reason for his letter. Paul had heard that there was serious division and disunity in the Church of God in Rome and he really wanted those issues to be resolved before he had arrived because if he was to come there and find that the issues were still there it could take an awful lot of time for him to try and resolve the issues that needed to be resolved thereby delaying his transit on to Spain with the gospel. So in a sense he's writing to instruct them so they might sort out their issues before he gets there. What were these issues and what was the main reason then 
for, for Paul's letter. As we said already, the Church of God in Rome was originally planted by others, not Paul, but others who had carried the gospel of the good news, the good news of God in the person of the Lord Jesus there. And like many churches in that region, in the early days of the Jesus movement, they would have been Jewish Christians. Those who had come out of Judaism and had seen that Jesus was the Messiah, who was the one promised by God in the Old Testament scriptures, and they saw him and they believed in him. So the church would have started off most likely as a predominantly Jewish church. Now we're told from history that Jewish people were expelled by the Roman Emperor Claudius from Rome in AD 49. You also read about that in Acts chapter 18. The Roman historian Suetonius tells us that the Jews were expelled because there was a disturbance caused by Crestus. Now that was most likely a reference to the disturbance that happened in the Jewish community when some people came to believe in Christ as the Messiah and others didn't. We see that tension in the book of Acts, for example. Um, the persecution of the, the traditional Judaizers who hated this notion that Jesus Christ was the Messiah. So there was this disturbance in the city of Rome to such a degree that the Emperor Claudius told the Jews to leave Rome. Now, the Jewish Christians were gone for at least five years because Claudius dies in AD 54. We think that this letter to the Church of God in Rome was written around AD 57. So there's a period of time there, five years at least, in which the Jews hadn't been in Rome. And the Church of God in Rome would have increasingly become a more Gentile church. So people who were not of the Jewish heritage. So you imagine the situation when after Claudius's death and the, as the Jews and the Jewish Christians would return to Rome, that they found the church of God that they had left a very different place five, six or seven years later. And they would find that the Jews were not the people who would follow the rules of the Torah the Old Testament law that shaped so much of the lives of the Jewish ones, even those who had come to faith in the Lord Jesus. They were people who still celebrated festival days. They, they still saw the importance, they saw it, of eating kosher food and other things to do with the Torah. But they came back and they discovered the church was predominantly Gentile. And those Gentiles were not engaged in those things at all. So this probably was the beginning of a division in the Church of God in Rome. Now, I mentioned in Romans 16 verses 1 and 2 that Phoebe, from the Church of God in Concrea, just up the road from, from Corinth, was, was a benefactor, somebody who was able to help people, but she helped Paul in the carrying of this letter to the Church of God in Rome. Some historians tell us that quite often that those who would courier a message to somewhere would be trained by those who'd written the letter to be able to convey the letter and to put the right tone and emphasis on the points that needed to be heard by the audience. So it's possible that Phoebe would have been coached by Paul to come with this letter to be received by the Church of God there and she would have addressed 
the two factions, if we can say that, in the Church of God in Rome, the Jewish Christians who still observed the Torah and the Gentile Christians who enjoyed their freedom in Christ as they understood the gospel. So we might be able to imagine uh, the interplay here and the scene as the letter is read and it addresses one one side and then the other side and, and both together because Paul's purpose was that he wanted them to come to unity. Now there was a really big issue that was created by this and I think we get serious hints of it towards the end of the letter again. So Romans chapter 15 verses 1 and 2 again let's go there and let's read this. Romans 15 1 and 2. We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Each of us should please our neighbour for their good to build them up. So Paul addresses a group known as the strong or the powerful and he numbers himself with them and he also references a group called the weak. But he's telling the strong not just to live in such a way that they please themselves but to involve the weak. Let's go back to chapter 14 to see a mention of of the weak. Chapter 14 and verse 1. Accept the one whose faith is weak. Without quarrelling over disputable matters, one person's faith allows them to eat anything. Now listen to the, the instructions of the Torah in a sense. But another whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. The one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not. And the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does, for God has accepted them. So we see Paul referring to these two groups in the church as strong and weak. And we need to be careful about how we understand that. It might have been that the Gentile believers had a position in culture and society that made them powerful. And that the Jewish believers who saw that the Torah was important and actually for some of them they said that if you didn't keep the Torah you weren't a proper Christian. Uh, Paul refers to them as those who haven't come to a full understanding of the faith yet so they're still in a weakness. But I want you to notice this from Romans chapter 14 and verse 2 in particular and verse 3. It says that the, the strong ones are not to regard with contempt the weak who do not eat. So those Gentile believers who would eat anything that wasn't kosher were not to regard with contempt, not to despise their brothers and sisters who were. But also that those brothers and sisters, the Jewish ones who observed the Torah, the weak as they're described, they were not to judge the ones who did eat. So they were not to sit in judgment. So you have two sides here. One where they'd got to a point where they looked with contempt on those who followed the Torah. And those Torah observers who sat in a, on a sort of moral high ground and looked with a judgmental attitude at those who didn't follow the Torah. So we have these two groups polarised in a sense in the church. And Paul addresses his letter to the, to the Church of God in Rome in the various little house churches that are referenced in Romans 16 and well, as well. And it might well have been the case that those little church house groups might have been of one faction or the other. 
and there was this separation there and Paul's desire was for them to be united and he wanted them to be united by the gospel because the gospel levels the playing field and creates a whole new community of people who are to be united in the same things. I think Romans chapter 15 verses 5 and 6 actually capture Paul's main point, his aspiration, his prayer, his hope as a consequence of the church of God in Rome receiving his letter. Romans 15 verses 5 and 6. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind toward each other that Christ Jesus had. So that with one mind and one voice you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. There you have it. What was Paul's desire? Paul's desire was that his letter that would address both factions, sharing with them the glorious gospel of God and how it levels the playing field and brings that group of believing ones into a whole new community they were to be of one mind having the same mind as Christ and to be united with one voice so they might glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus that's what a church of God is to be church of God is to be a group of those who have been saved by God's grace and brought together with singleness of mind to glorify God in how they live and how they serve together and with one voice to speak of that in their worship and in their prayer and in their fellowship and in their testimony in the community in which they are found. So that's the context for the letter to the Church of God in Rome. It's not merely a theological document. Quite often we approach it as, as it is that. But it's a pastoral document as well. It's written out of a burden that Paul has to see this church renewed in its unity and brothers and sisters who are polarised to come back together to stop looking with contempt and looking with a judgmental attitude at one another but to come back together united by the gospel and to recognise that God will do a great work in them and through them for his glory. So that brings us to our portion for today which is from uh, Romans chapter 2 verse 17 onwards but I just want you to notice before we go to uh, verse 17 of chapter 2 that verse 1 of chapter 2 I think tells us those that group in the church that Paul may well have been addressing at this moment look at verse 1 of chapter 2 you therefore have no excuse you who pass judgment on someone else for at whatever point you judge another you are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things so we've said that it was the weak who sat in judgment it was the jewish christians who felt that it was important to continue to observe the torah to be a proper christian they were the ones who looked with a judgmental attitude at the gentiles who enjoyed their freedom in christ and realized that he was the fulfillment of the law and they didn't have to keep the law so that's, I think, who Paul is addressing in chapter 2. Now let's read our portion together. So it's from chapter 2, verse 17, uh, through to uh, verse 20 of uh, Romans chapter 3. And then I'm just going to make a few points on this. Now you, to this Jew, 
If you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law and boast in God, if you know his will and approve of what is superior because you are instructed in the law, if you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light for those who are in the dark, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of little children, because you have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, do you dishonour God by breaking the law? As it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Circumcision has value if you observe the law, but if you break the law, you have become as though you had not been circumcised. So then, if those who are not circumcised keep the law's requirements, will they not be regarded as though they were circumcised? The one who is not circumcised physically and yet obeys the law will condemn you who, even though you have the written code and circumcision, are a lawbreaker. A person is not a Jew who is one only outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the spirit, not by the written code. Such a person's praise is not from other people, but from God. What advantage, then, is there in being a Jew, or what value is there in circumcision? Much in every way. First of all, the Jews have been entrusted with the very words of God. What if some were unfaithful? Will their unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? Not at all. Let God be true and every human being a liar, as it is written, so that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. But if our unrighteousness brings about God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say? That God is unjust in bringing his wrath on us? I'm using a human argument. Certainly not. If that were so, how could God judge the world? Someone might argue, if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases his glory, why am I still condemned as a sinner? Why not say, as some slanderously claim that we say, let us do evil that good may result? Their condemnation is just. What shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? Not at all. For we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. All have be together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. And the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. So as we see this, we, we see that Paul is most likely addressing the Jewish believers in the church of God in Rome. And he's saying to them, you be careful not to think that you can sit in judgment on, uh, on others in the church. Because you have such a heritage as a Jew, you be careful you don't misinterpret that. Yes, God has given you um, the covenant promises. Yes, God has given you his word, the Torah and the instruction as to how to live. Yes, God has given circumcision, which is the sign of the covenant. Uh, all these things are a precious heritage and an advantage, yes. 
And because it was from the Jews that the Lord Jesus came, the Messiah, the one who fulfilled all of those prophecies, the one who himself came to fulfill the law because no other person could fulfill the law. I just want to say this about Old Testament believers. Old Testament believers were people who trusted what God had promised. And in trusting what God had promised said that I, I will live the way God has said I should live. It was that order. Quite often people say that the Old Testament it was a it was achieving salvation by works. I don't believe that at all. I believe it was salvation by faith. In Abraham's case it was, and Paul goes on to speak about that. It was by faith in God's promises and then living according to the things that God said should shape life. And it's the same today. Believers today trust in the saviour that God has provided. We believe the promises of God made to us in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ who has died and has been buried and has been raised to life again and guarantees for us this life now and forever. And we trust him for that and then live according to the way that God has said we should live and as the Lord Jesus has explained how we should live. It's the same thing in the same order. So Paul is saying to the Jews here in this section, just be careful that you don't take your Torah observance, your circumcision heritage and uh, having received the, the Torah from God and all your lineage all the way back to Abraham. Don't take that as some sort of automatic um, situation that makes you a better Christian than the Gentiles who have not had that. Don't presume about circumcision. Circumcision is one of those things that makes you wince as a man. Um, children were to be circumcised and you can imagine that there would be pain then but it would be easily forgotten because it was done at such a young age. But we have instances in the Bible when, when grown men were circumcised and it, it, it's a thing of pain. But it was the sign of God's covenant. God wants us to enter into the joy of knowing him. And there is one who has come. Who has endured the pain for us. When you notice what Paul says here. That a Jew who claimed to be superior. Because uh, he was circumcised. Had to be careful that he was actually keeping the law. And if he wasn't somebody who wasn't circumcised. And who kept the law. Was actually acting as if he was somebody who enjoyed the covenant. And what Paul really got at was. He said look circumcision of the heart is what really matters. What happens now after the Lord Jesus has been here and the Holy Spirit does his work is the circumcision of the heart, the change of the inside. When someone is brought into the covenant relationship with God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as Saviour, brought about by the work of the Spirit and sealed by him, that's what counts. That life that is shaped and marked by the Holy Spirit's work in us. Notice in this little section as well, just uh, very quickly, and, and we'll pass on here, that the texts from the Old Testament writings that Paul uses, quite often we look at them and we say they apply to all of humanity, and particularly as we read them in chapter 3, we think, that well, that's speaking of all humanity. But those texts were initially written to a Jewish audience for the Jews themselves, the people of Israel. So this is why I'm labouring the point here. I think Paul is addressing the Jewish side of the, of the church here. And he's using scriptures that they would have known. And he's saying to them, look, really, 
the law has been given, the law that you want the Gentiles to follow as you're trying to follow. And you can't follow because nobody can, only Christ could. That law has been given to reveal the seriousness of sin, not the means of salvation. Yes, it reveals the means of salvation because that requires one who would come who would be the fulfilment of it, and that's Jesus Christ. But it shows that none of us are sinners, all ruined by sin and society wrecked by sin as well. None of us is able to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. The field is levelled. Gentle, Gentiles and Jews together are sinners. The law exposes that sin for the Jews so they should run to the Saviour even more maybe than the Gentiles who had nothing to do with the Old Testament. So here's a warning and a, an encouragement from Paul uh, for, for these Christian believers here to, who were Jewish to remember that actually they're no better than the Gentiles. Saved by grace and brought into a wonderful relationship and the Torah it's now a matter of conscience for them if they feel that they, they want to follow that, but they cannot force it on the Gentiles. So he's appealing to them to see that the gospel reveals that all are sinners and that all need the same saviour and that the law that was given by God is the law that exposes sin for what it really is and brings us then to God's solution. Now we haven't got to the solution yet in our portion today, but that's where it picks up next week in verse 21. Our God reveals his righteousness in saving sinners who are guilty through the Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. People saved by faith in him alone are those who are brought into that covenant relationship, who then, by faith in him, have their lives changed and they then have that desire to live the way that God has said they should live and how the Lord Jesus said they should live. So that's why Paul comes at them as Romans 1 verse 16 says with the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Yes it transforms the individual but it transforms the individual in a way that means that those individuals will want to be gathered together into churches of God in a unity that is a unity of mind and a unity of voice that gives glory to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what Paul wanted for the church of God in Rome. And of course, that's what God wants for us today in churches of God. He wants believers who have put their faith and their trust in the, the Saviour who was promised and in whom all God's promises are guaranteed. He wants us, having put our faith in him and receiving forgiveness of sins, then to live the life that he has, he has marked out for us. And that will bring us into community with other like-minded believers in churches of God according to New Testament pattern. And they together will get rid of anything that would be among them, that would mean that some would look at some with contempt and others would look with the look of judgmentalism. There's no place for it because the gospel levels it all. We're all sinners, saved by grace and brought into community so that with one mind and one voice we might glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Praise God that he has done this to bring us together for that purpose. It's all for him.
Let's pray that he will help us to live that out in our own personal experience.